this is the hour of doom. And more doom. No, it's the hour of... All right, bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. <laughs> welcome to Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Podcast. A paragon of power in a pitiful world. And the number one show, by the way, about medical preparedness. Because it's the only show about medical preparedness. It's like Avatar. If Avatar was set in an old age home <laughs> on a distant planet. And who am I? I'm Joe Alden, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of the award-winning survival website, doomandbloom.net. And this is... Amy Alton. I'm a nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. That's right, and purveyor of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. She's so hot, salsa varieties now come in mild, medium, and Amy. <laughs> That's right. On this show, you're going to get the conventional medical wisdom. You'll get the unconventional medical wisdom, plus at absolutely no charge, wild-eyed rants by a man who can't seem to get out of his rocking chair. Hey, whatever it takes to get your family medically prepared for times of trouble, you're going to hear it right here, but first... You got to listen to this. All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Or don't. If John Wick and Jack Reacher are your older brothers, you know what? You don't have to get excited by a little zombie apocalypse or two. But answer me this. Who's going to keep your family safe and healthy when you know, when the you-know-what really hits the fan? When the medical facilities are overwhelmed and somebody you care about is sick or injured? Well, don't look at me. I'm just some guy. It's you, old buddy, old pal. You can bet that when it's least expected, you're elected. So get off your duff and learn some stuff. And why not get some medical supplies while you're at it? I'll bet Amy can tell you where you can find some. Absolutely. Store.doomandbloom.net, where we hand pack your kits after you place your order. That's right. So everything's nice and fresh. That's right. Here fresh expiration dates, freshly packed, no dust anywhere. <laughs> Good stuff. I want to mention that the Book Excellence Award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook continues to rank 4.8 out of 5 on Amazon, over 2,500 reviews. And it's still high on bestseller lists throughout the country. If you haven't checked it out yet, you'll find the black and white version on Amazon and the color version only at store.doomandbloom.net. We even have a color spiral-bound version on our website. Hey, we all know that a survival group needs someone with medical knowledge and supplies to treat heavy bleeding and orthopedic injuries. Indeed, the average survival medical kit concentrates on these issues, probably to the exclusion of much else. Even well-prepared medics don't realize they'll be faced with a quite different challenge much more often than that. That's dental problems. Injuries to teeth and poor oral health can negatively affect the work efficiency of members of your group. If you've ever had to work with a bad toothache, you know what I mean. Dental issues in the field may be a common problem for the family medic in survival scenarios. First and foremost, the group medic needs to know dental anatomy. Luckily, a tooth is a pretty simple structure. The part of the tooth that you see above the gum line is called the crown. Hidden below the gum is the root, which resides in a bony jaw socket known as the alveolus. Teeth are anchored to alveolar bone with ligaments, just like you have ligaments holding together your knee or shoulder. The tooth is composed of different materials. The crown is the, the crown has enamel. That's the hard white external covering of the tooth. That's essentially the tooth's armor. Underneath the enamel is the dentin. 
Dentin is firm yellowish material comprised of many microscopic tubes underneath the enamel. When enamel is lost, heat or cold travels through these tubes to cause sensitivity. Then there is the pulp, that softer tissue in the center of the tooth that's surrounded by the dentin. The pulp contains blood vessels and nerve endings and is considered the living part of the tooth. When the nerve dies, the tooth dies. A normal adult mouth has 32 teeth, most of which replace baby teeth by age about 13. They're comprised of incisors, you got eight of those, the middlemost four teeth of the upper and lower jaws, canines, which are the pointed teeth just outside the uh, incisors, he has four of those, Mo premolars, eight of those total, teeth between the canines and the molars, and the molars, which you have eight also, flat teeth in the rear of the mouth. Now, of the molars, there are wisdom teeth. There are four total of those. These teeth erupt later at around age 18. They're often surgically removed to prevent displacement of other teeth. So you may have wisdom teeth, you may not. Different teeth have different purposes. Incisors and canines are for cutting. Molars are for grinding. Let's talk about dental trauma. When faced with dental trauma, even experienced medical professionals are often unsure how to proceed. Dental trauma can appear in various forms. After an injury to the oral cavity, a person may have a dental fracture, that's a portion of a tooth chipped or broken off, a dental subluxation, that is a loose tooth, or a dental avulsion, which is a tooth that's been knocked out completely. When a portion of a tooth is broken, let's talk about dental fractures, its categorization is based on the number of layers of the tooth that are exposed. So classically, in the old days, they referred to these as Ellis fractures, Ellis class one, class two, and class three. Ellis one fractures, well, only the enamel has been broken in this case, and no dentin or pulp is exposed. Now that's a problem only if there's a sharp edge to the tooth, you can actually file the edge smooth in some cases. An Ellis two fracture shows the yellow or beige dentin underneath the enamel. This area could be sensitive and should be covered if at all possible. The composition of dentin is more porous than enamel and allows bacteria to enter and infect the tooth. The medic can improvise a mixture of oil of cloves, by the way, known as eugenol and zinc oxide powder to try to make a protective covering. Then there are LS3 fractures. LS3 fractures have the pulp and dentin both exposed. These can be quite uncomfortable. If the pulp's exposed, there may be some bleeding. So the risk of permanent damage is likely in these cases. So you really have to put a protective covering on this one for sure if you expect to save the tooth. Now, when you identify a fracture of a tooth due to external trauma, you should evaluate the patient for associated damage to the face, especially the inside of the oral cavity, the inside of the cheek, on the tongue, or the jaw. On occasion, a soft tissue laceration needs to be sutured. So you want to use an absorbable suture like plain gut, PDS, or polyglycolic acid. These are some of the absorbable sutures that I talk about in my suture class. You want to use water to thoroughly flush and rinse the inside of the mouth so that you can evaluate it easier. For your own protection, you need to place a bite block, even a large eraser or two, uh, like those pink erasers actually would do. You put it on the other side from where the injury was so that you can see what's going on without getting bitten yourself. Then you want to use your gloved hand or cotton applicator and lightly touch the injured tooth to see if it's loose. For sensitive LS2 fractures or of dentin, you want to dry the exposed area and cover with temporary cement. Improvisations for austere settings include uh, things like fluoride dental varnish, clear nail polish, or even super glue, cyanoacrylate glue, to decrease sensitivity. You want to provide pain meds and cold packs. Certainly, there can be some swelling associated to the soft tissue. A thin cloth should be placed, by the way, between the pack and the skin uh, so to not uh, damage the skin. 
and you want to instruct the patient to avoid hot or cold food or drink for a period of time. LS3 fractures that hit the pulp, well, these are more problematic, usually due to the high risk of infection. There is something called DICAL, D-Y-C-A-L, that's calcium hydroxide. If you put it on the pulp surface coupled with additional temporary cement, it can be used as a protective covering. There are newer prescription materials known as glass ionomers that have been added in modern dentistry. You may not be able to obtain those, however. Alternatively, a commercially available product from India known as Prevest Fusion Flow, P-R-E-V-E-S-T, Fusion, F-U-S-I-O-N, Flow, F-L-O, is a composite material that may be useful but has to be cured with a UV dental curing light to harden. These can be found online. When the pulp is involved in the structure, antibiotics have to be considered. Penicillin 500 mg orally every six hours or doxycycline 100 mg orally twice a day for a week. These are acceptable options. Particularly difficult dental fractures involve the root. Sometimes it's not until the gum is peeled back that the damage to the root is actually identified. If this is the case off-grid, the tooth is likely unsalvageable, especially in vertical fractures, especially that reach the root. Extraction might be recommended. Let's talk about dental subluxations or loose teeth. A tooth that's knocked loose but not out of its socket is called a subluxation. If you use your gloved fingers or a cotton applicator lightly to, a, to identify the actual injured tooth, you'll notice some mobility. Often these injuries are, will appear to bleed slightly from the border between the tooth and gum. You'll see that. Minimal trauma may require no actual major intervention, although the tooth may benefit from support. The loose tooth should be pressed back into its socket and splinted to nearby teeth for stability. Now, dentists use wire or special materials for this purpose, but you could use soft wax or even specialized dental wax, which is available online, and prevent further trauma by placing your patient maybe on a liquid diet for a time. Now, then there's the tooth that's actually been completely knocked out. That's called the dental avulsion. Occasionally, the trauma may be severe enough to completely knock the tooth out of its socket. The most favorable situation is when the tooth is knocked out in one piece, including the root and the ligaments that hold it in the jaw. Time is a very important factor for treatment success. If the tooth is not immediately replaced or at least preserved in a solution, the success of reimplantation drops 1% every minute, every minute that the tooth is not in its socket. A good preservative for teeth that have been knocked out is Hank's solution, H-A-N-K. This is a balanced salt solution that's been used to culture living cells and it helps protect raw ligament fibers that have been torn by the tooth being knocked out. And Hank Solution is available commercially as Save a Tooth. Save a Tooth. S A V E hyphen A hyphen T O T H. You have to find the tooth, of course. You pick it up by the crown only. Avoid touching the root if at all possible because it could damage already compromised ligament fibers. You want to flush the tooth clean of dirt and debris with water or saline solution. You don't want to scrub it, that'll further damage the ligaments. And you want to place it in the preservative solution. If you don't have Hank's, place the tooth in milk normal saline, egg white, or saliva. You can put it between your cheek and gums or under your tongue even. This will help keep the ligament cells viable longer than plain water would. Now, if the intact tooth has been out for less than 15 minutes, you may attempt to re-implant it. Replacing a tooth isn't always successful, but it's worth a shot. You should flush the tooth in the empty socket with Hank solution, replace the tooth in the socket, hold in place for five minutes, making sure the tooth is level with its neighbors, Cover with cotton or gauze, have the patient slowly and gently bite down to keep it in place. Splint the tooth for two weeks with soft wax, adhesive putty, or even aluminum foil on either side for support. Some people actually use a thin wire and cyanoacrylate superglue type gel. 
You want to place your patient on a liquid diet and to prevent infection, consider antibiotics such as penicillin 500 milligrams orally every six hours for seven to 14 days, or doxycycline 100 milligrams twice a day for seven to 14 days. If the tooth's been out longer than 15 minutes, well, you may have to soak the tooth for a half hour or so in a Hank solution before you replace it. The longer you wait to replace the tooth, however, the more painful it's going to be to replace due to swelling and other factors. You have to make sure you have pain meds and cold packs available in your supplies. After a couple of hours of being out, the ligament fibers dry out and die, and the tooth is, for most intents and purposes, dead. And replacing it at this point is likely to be unsuccessful as the pulp will decay, just like all dead soft tissue would. By the way, don't replace baby teeth. They may scar down and prevent mature teeth from emerging. A sobering fact is that the pulp rarely, if ever, survives the injury, even if the ligaments do. As such, without the availability of things like root canal procedures to remove dead tissue, even your best efforts may be unsuccessful. If a serious infection arises in the dead pulp, the patient may actually be in a worse situation than just missing a tooth. Remember, 90% of dental emergencies can be dealt with by tooth extraction. We'll talk about that in a future show. Hey, Nurse Amy here, and I just wanted to continue our talk that we were having. Previously, I have uh, two other parts in our last two podcasts on herbal medicine. And we discussed um, first aid kit, herbal, um, how to make some of these, um, some equipment that you would want to have in a, a kitchen that you were producing or processing some medicinal herbal remedies. And I think we got up to tinctures. So in part two, we did talk about infusions, decoctions, and tinctures. And today I'd like to pick up with uh, capsules and powders. Powdered herbs are most easily taken as capsules. I mean, obviously, I mean, you see these uh, crazy people on things like TikTok that are trying to eat cinnamon. Well, it's the same kind of thing with powdered herbs. It's going to stick to the inside of your mouth. Very difficult to swallow um, and may cause some discomfort in your mouth. So some herbs are best taken in capsules. Um, externally, uh, the powders can be used as a dusting powder to the skin or even mixed with tinctures as a poultice. And we will talk about a poultice. I'm not sure if we're going to be getting to a poultice during this section, but I will in the future talk about poultices. So your powders can be made into a poultice. Reputable herbal suppliers are really the best place to buy powdered herbs. Obviously, if we're in a post-disaster or long-term survival situation, you're going to have to be doing this yourself. So you're going to need to learn how to dry out your herbs, and you're going to need some good herbal books to tell you what's the best way to take this particular herb because each one of them has the best way to take it. They're not all going to be best in capsules. They're not all going to be best in tinctures. It depends on the property of the herb and, again, how it's best extracted and then how it's best um, taken not necessarily into the body, but maybe onto the body because you may be using it for a wound or for a rash or burn or something externally. So you do need to know each one of the herbs that you might be growing or happen to have purchased in advance and hopefully have stored it so it, it stays fresh long term. 
you know, these things can break down. So you may not have an herb that you bought 10 years ago still be effective or, or useful. So make sure you keep an eye on, on what you have purchased and uh, what an expiration date might be for that. Um, but you can also buy, for things that you know can be taken in capsules, buy gelatin or vegetarian capsule cases and again keep those make sure you keep them in a cool location if you think about the outside of capsules what do they do they dissolve they break down so you definitely want to keep those in a nice cool area not I'm not saying freeze them but you don't want to subject them to moisture and you definitely don't want to subject subject them to any kind of heat source um, one of the herbs, a powdery, slippery elm, actually makes a useful base for poultices and astringents such as witch hazel, which can be applied to uh, rashes, irritations on the skin, or it can be mixed into ointments for hemorrhoids or varicose veins. So that's one particular herb that is actually one that could be used as a powder. So how do you make a capsule? Pour powder into a saucer and slide the capsule halves towards each other, scooping up the powder as you go along. There's actually special capsule making contraptions, devices. Um, if you want to invest in that, capsules are something that you're going to make a lot of. Go for it. I don't think they're very expensive, but it's pretty simple if you just need to make a few as you go along to just pour the powder into a saucer and take the two sides and slide them together. When the halves of the capsule are full of powder, get them completely together uh, without spilling the powder and store them. And again, how do we store them? Exactly like we just talked about. Without moisture, without heat, and usually without any exposure to sunlight. Let's talk about tonic wines. It's just an interesting way of making herbal remedies and it's similar to tinctures but instead of using these really strong alcohols we're using a wine and that's kind of cool because if you are in an at a grow zone where you have grapes and you would be able to make wine this is going to be another way for you to extract certain types of herbs and they don't taste good, <laughs> just like the tinctures don't taste good. They're not going to um, be tasty. They're not going to make your wine better, for sure. Um, and they require steeping a certain herbs that are called tonic herbs. And these are herbs that are best extracted through wine and, and possibly through um, the alcohol, too. But they, they need a little extra oomph to get out their... Um, therapeutic um, components and things like bitter herbs like uh, southern wood or Chinese angelica are really useful herbs to put into red or white wine it doesn't matter for several weeks this is not something that you're going to make in a day this is not like a tea you're not going to extract these overnight so this does take pre-planning so it's something, you know, if you're interested in making tonic wines, you have to do these in advance because if somebody does get ill and it's something you wanted to use, you had a particular remedy, you're not going to just be able to make it 
even if in a few days. So a simple and effective way to make a tonic wine is in a jar or a ceramic vat that has a tap at the base so that you can draw the wine off. Remember, if you if you look at herbs that sit in liquid, uh, if you've made a tincture or you if you've made a tonic wine, what you'll notice is the herbs, or even just a tea, you'll notice the herbs mostly sit at the top, right? So by having the tap at the bottom of the wine, usually those herbs are going to be towards the top and you're not going to draw off, you know, these pieces of, of herbs that are in there and then drink it. If for some reason it does come out of the tap or if you haven't used a tap and you just need to pour it off, of course, just filter it. You know, just use a strainer. You just don't want to eat the pieces of herbs that's not what it's there for you're drinking the wine and herbal wines are made by fermenting the herb in the same way really that wine is produced from grapes Um, it's a pretty simple process but the fermentation alters the activity of the herbs and tends to reduce their medicinal value just a little bit so there again there are certain herbs that that's the way that they should be made. So you need the good books. You need to know how should I produce this wine, this particular herbal remedy. You don't want to have the herbs exposed to air. So if they get exposed to air, they may become moldy. So you're going to want to look in that that look in that jar and add extra wine to make sure that the herbs are covered. If they look moldy or they look unusual, you're going to need to throw all of that out because you cannot drink an herbal tincture that was made with moldy herbs. Not good for you. Don't do it. You typically use 100 grams of dried or 200 grams of fresh tonic herbs or 25 grams of dried bitter herbs, which again, notice the smaller amount because they're bitter, to one quart or one liter of red or white wine. Again, doesn't matter, whatever you want, red or white. The standard dosage is to drink one sherry glass, which is a third of a cup, each day before a meal. Use a ceramic vat, again, like we talked about, with the tap at the base, or a sterilized glass jar. Again, we don't want to add anything that may make the herbs moldy or, or have an issue with going bad. You can store it for three to four months, ensuring again that the wine covers the herbs. And one more time, I'm going to say discard the remedy if those herbs get moldy. Yuck. Exact um, steps. Place the herbs in a large clean jar or vat. Pour in enough wine to cover the herbs completely. Close the jar securely. Shake carefully and let stand. Allow the wine to mature over two, preferably six weeks. Then take a dose from the tap or the jar. Regularly top off the mixture with the wine. Now, remember the original amount of wine and herbs that you've used when you start taking doses off and you add more wine, that wine has not had as much time to sit with the herbs. So it hasn't had the two or six weeks. So what you're eventually doing is you're kind of diluting your tonic wine as you go. So the more doses you take off and the more wine you put, and then you take more doses off, 
the next day or a few hours later, you are diluting the strength of the tonic wine that you originally made. But you don't have a choice because those herbs have to be covered with wine. You can't let them be exposed to air or they'll get bad and then you got to throw the whole thing away. All right, let's move on to syrups. Sugar and unrefined, I'm sorry, honey and unrefined sugar are effective preservatives that can be combined with infusions or decoctions, which we did talk about in a previous show, to make syrups and cordials. They have the additional benefit of having a soothing action and therefore a perfect vehicle for cough mixtures. How many times have you heard the whiskey and the honey and the lemon and there you go, you've got a nice little throat sore throat relief herbal medicine. With their sweet taste, syrups can disguise the taste of unpalatable herbs. Remember, <laughs> there's very few herbs out there that you're going to taste that you say, oh, that's so delicious. Nope, just not going to happen. So the sugar and the honey are, are greatly appreciated when you are taking these just to make them taste a little better. And again, the honey is very soothing to sore throats. A syrup can be made with equal portions of an herbal infusion or decoction and honey, equal amounts, or using unrefined sugar. An infusion or decoction for syrup needs to be infused or simmered for the maximum time. You want concentration. You, your infusion or your decoction needs to be sitting for the maximum amount of time that it's supposed to be sitting for. Some of them are five minutes, some of them are 15 minutes, but you want to make sure that you keep it sitting for that amount of time so that it's concentrating because now you're diluting it again with equal amounts of the honey or the sugar. Usually infusions should be infused for 15 minutes and decoction simmered for 30 minutes. So that's some guidelines. Press the soaked herb through a strainer or sieve to remove as much liquid as possible. Squeeze out all the liquid you can get from those uh, fluids that you have made, uh, sat the herbs in. Small amounts of neat tincture can be added to the cooled syrup to increase its, its effectiveness. In other words, if you've made a tincture with the same herb, you can add a little bit of that tincture just, again, to boost up the concentration of the herb. Syrups made with tinctures, um, that, that can happen too instead of using an infusion. So you can combine 500 grams of honey or unrefined sugar with one cup of water. Gently heat all the sugar or honey until it's completely dissolved and the mixture has thickened. Allow that to cool and then stir one part of the tincture or mixture of tinctures because you could use a combination into three parts of the syrup and bottle. So you've made the syrup with the honey and the water or the sugar and the water, cooked it, let it cool, and then you have mixed one part of tincture to three parts of syrup. Okay? That's what you do. You can, as to take it, you can take one to two teaspoons three times a day. Storage, just like everything, store in a dark glass bottle. Uh, you can use a cork top on these syrups and place in a cool place for up to six months. 
up to six months. So these aren't things that are going to last six years. You're going to kind of make them fresh. Somebody's not feeling well. They don't have to sit around like the tonic wine or the tinctures do. So your processing time is pretty much make it and take it. So that's really good to know. And you should know which um, herbs are, are good to take as syrups um, for sure. Again, get a book. Read the book when you're looking up what a problem is, what are the herbs that are good for it, how do I process those herbs. Everyone's different. And, of course, some of them can be done many ways. They can be done in tinctures and tonic wines and syrups and as a decoction and as an infusion. So there are herbs that you can pretty much do anything with. And there are some that are only going to be best made with a tincture because it's so tough to get it out um, to exactly do this again we talked about this pour the infusion or the decoction into a pan add the honey or sugar gently heat stirring constantly until the honey or sugar is dissolved and the mixture has a syrupy consistency remove from the heat and cool pour the cooled syrup into a sterilized glass jar again dark using a funnel and store in a cool dark place Seal the jars with cork stoppers. Because syrups are prone to ferment and may explode if kept in screw top bottles, that's why you're using the cork top. So it allows a little bit of an air escape. If you seal it too much, you may have an issue. You don't want to do that. So use cork tops. It's, one, it's part of the equipment. If you're going to be doing herbal tinctures and infusions and syrups you know you're going to need some bottles some are going to need screw tops some are going to need corks make sure you have uh, the equipment that you need let's talk about infused oils infusing an herb in an oil allows its active fat soluble ingredients to be extracted hot infused oils are simmered while cold infused oils are heated naturally by the sun both types of oils can be used externally as massage oils or added to creams and ointments. Infused oil should not be confused with essential oil. You are not drinking infused oils. You're not putting them on your tongue. And they are not essential oils. They are not taken directly from a plant. They are sitting in oil which the oil is extracting the herb the herbal component from the actual plant material but it's the oil that you're using essential oil is taken directly from your plant whatever part that is used it's pressed it's squeezed out there are different ways to extract essential oils depending on what type um, part of the plant that you're using, but they're not the same thing. The essential oil is an active constituent naturally present in the plant and has specific medicinal properties and a distinct aroma. Essential oils may be added to an infused oil to increase its concentration or its medicinal efficiency, just like you added a tincture to the syrup to make it a little more concentrated. You can also do that with infused oils, but they're not the same thing. Hot infused oils can last up to a year, a year, not 20 years. They're most potent when taken fresh. 
So when you're getting close to that year, they're going to be less potent. If using infused oils only occasionally, make a smaller quantity than the standard amount with the same portion of herb to oil. The, a wine press may be replaced with a jug. When cool enough to touch, squeeze the oil through a muslin cloth, uh, which I actually have an illustration for, but it, it's similar to uh, making cheese. that You're pouring it in and then you're, you're squeezing the cloth to get the oil out. And what that's doing is just basically filtering the herbal material, the plant material, from the oil. So it's, it's just like a good strainer, but muslin, you know, muslin cloth um, really takes out all of that plant material. So you're just getting the oil. Many herbs make effective hot infused oils, especially spicy herbs such as ginger, cayenne, and pepper. These oils can be rubbed into the skin to relieve, to relieve pain like arthritis, improve local blood flow, and relax muscles. Other hot infused oils from leafy herbs such as comfrey speed wound healing, but don't put that on an open wound. You want to use that on something that's maybe like bruised skin or a sprained ankle or a twisted knee, not something that's an open laceration. Oil infused with Mullen is used for earache and ear infections, and chickweed ointment may be produced from a hot infused oil. Standard quantity for infused oils, you use 250 grams of dried or 250 grams of fresh herb to three cups or 750 mLs of olive, sunflower, or other good quality vegetable oil. Store it in a sterilized, airtight, dark glass bottle for up to a year for best results used within six months. So exact steps. One, stir the chopped herb and oil together in a glass bowl, bowl over a saucepan of boiling water. Cover and simmer gently for two to three hours. Remove, number two, remove from heat and allow the mixture to cool and then pour into the wine press or a jug with a muslin cloth in place, collect the strained oil in the drug, pressing all the liquid out of the herb from the muslin cloth. Squeeze that really well. And then, like we just said, pour the infused oil into a clean, dark glass bottle using a funnel. Seal and label each bottle with the date and the herb that you use so that you know how old it is and exactly what is in there. So this concludes um, part three of our herbal talk. I hope you are enjoying this series. It's actually fun for me too to review all this. I love this book. Encyclopedia of Herbal Medicine, the definitive reference to 550 herbs and remedies for common ailments. This show is sponsored by Possums. Possums, those beautiful marsupials who you'd think would spell their name starting with a P, but it's really an O. Get one for your home and get some real use out of those rabies shots you keep in that old refrigerator in the woodshed. Oh, possum. You know, infectious diseases are a problem in every part of the world, and a common yet deadly example is malaria. You might be surprised to learn that malaria was once a major medical issue in the southern United States. In fact, a 1933 survey found that up to 30% of local populations in the Tennessee River Valley were affected. The disease was also common in World War II war zones in the Pacific. Now, you want to know something almost no one knows? 
Malaria was such a concern to the U.S. government back then that the CDC, which at that time stood for Communicable Disease Center, was established in 1946 primarily to combat it. Now it stands for Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, but its original mission was just to deal with malaria in the United States. The CDC and the health agencies of 13 southeastern states instituted the National Malaria Eradication Program in 1947. By the end of 1949, close to 5 million homes were sprayed with pesticide. This had an immediate effect. In 1947, 15,000 new cases of malaria were reported. The next year, it was down to 2,000. By the end of the year after that, malaria was considered eradicated in the United States. This public health miracle happened through the widespread implementation of insecticides, drainage programs, and the installation of door and window screens. In recent weeks, six cases of malaria have been reported in Florida's Sarasota County and one in Cameron County, Texas. They represent the first documented cases of local transmission in 20 years when eight cases were reported in Palm Beach, Florida. Now, that doesn't mean that Americans don't get malaria abroad. In 2018, close to 1,800 cases of travel-related malaria were identified in returning travelers. This is a drop in the bucket compared to the damage done yearly worldwide by malaria. The CDC reports that in 2020, an estimated 241 million cases were diagnosed and 627,000 people died, mostly children, in sub-Saharan Africa. Now, given this fact, it's important for the family medic to know how to identify threats early and take action to prevent outbreaks of any infectious disease. So you might as well know about malaria. So what causes malaria? Malaria is the disease caused by a parasite in the genus Plasmodium. Several types can cause the disease, but Plasmodium falciparum is most likely to cause the severest infections. Malaria is usually transmitted by a bite from a certain species of mosquito known as Anopheles. It carries the parasite. Now only the females bite and they must have previously taken a blood meal from an infected person to harbor the parasite. The organism lives in the saliva of the mosquito and is injected in each future victim during a bite. Now, once in a human, the malaria parasite lives in red blood cells, leaving open a number of ways in which the disease can be spread by blood transfusions, needle sharing, organ transplants, or even from mother to fetus. Other than these specific avenues, malaria is not really considered contagious from person to person. It's not airborne like cold, flus, or COVID, and it's not passed along by sexual contact. It's important to recognize the signs and symptoms. Expect to see symptoms begin about 10 days after an infected mosquito bite. In some cases, however, symptoms may be delayed up to a year. This is because Plasmodium falciparum can remain dormant in the liver for a time. You'll only see physical symptoms once it invades the red blood cells. Now, there may be a cycle of inactivity followed by active phases known as relapses. Relapses tend to worsen over time and can be separated by weeks, months, or even years. So your symptoms that you're going to look for are fever and chills, headache, muscle aches, fatigue, nausea and vomiting, diarrhea, and in the worst cases, confusion and altered mental status. The organism that causes malaria sometimes destroys so many blood cells that you get anemia. In some cases, skin and eyes turn yellow. That's called jaundice. If ignored, organ failure, seizures, coma, and even death may occur. Diagnosis isn't difficult if you happen to have a microscope. The plasmodium parasites actually can be identified in a drop of blood. So why malaria and why now? The conventional wisdom put forth by many experts points to warmer temperatures caused by climate change. Hotter weather and increased rainfall indeed could lead to wider spread of malaria and other tropical diseases. 
Mosquitoes breed best in the heat, as long as there's a water source to lay eggs, and are rendered inactive by cold. Now, others suggest that the recent cases, which seem to be caused by a different type of plasmodium, plasmodium vivax, causes less severe symptoms, and they may not be recognized as signs of malaria by the victim at first, not until they have an actual relapse. Well, despite, by the way, having less severe symptoms, the CDC considers any case of malaria by any organism to be a medical emergency and should be treated immediately. Perhaps the malaria cases in Texas and Florida have been discovered because COVID has raised people's awareness regarding these sort of vague flu-like illnesses. Those who are feeling sick may be more likely to present to their medical provider concerned that they have COVID, only to find they have malaria instead, which is probably even worse in most cases. An alternative hypothesis you're not going to hear about is the possibility that immigrants crossing the border, many of whom come from countries where malaria is very common, may be carrying the parasite. If the carriers get bitten by mosquitoes after they arrive in the United States, the now infected mosquitoes can transmit the disease locally. Cases of malaria, if they become more common, might be even more severe in the U.S. than in other places. This is because U.S. citizens really have essentially no immunity to malaria due to lack of exposure. Rapid treatment is very important to nip the infection in the bud. The historical treatment, and the treatment still in areas without resistant strains, which include parts of Central America, Haiti, and the Dominican Republic, they still treat it with quinine, chloroquine, or alternatively, hydroxychloroquine. How about that? Surprise, surprise. Quinine sulfate, in addition to doxycycline, is an option in cases which were required in areas where resistance to chloroquine is actually very common. And there is indeed an, a vaccine that has been out recently and may be effective. Now, if you can't help but travel in regions where Anopheles mosquitoes live, you might consider taking medicine that offers protection against plasmodium organisms. Begin the course of treatment a few days before and both during and for a week after your trip. Examples of these medicines include chloroquine, as I mentioned, hydroxychloroquine, adovacuone, doxycycline, mefloquine, primaquine, and tefenoquine. Woo, those are a mouthful. The exact dosing varies depending on the drug. Preventing mosquito bites, that's going to prevent malaria. So you want to use an EPA-approved insect repellent. These include DEET, D-E-E-T, picaridin, IR-3535, oil of lemon eucalyptus, paramenthane diol, PMD, and 2-undecanone. These are all acceptable, by the way, for pregnant women or breastfeeding women. You want to apply the repellents after, not before, applying sunscreen if you're going out. When you're outdoors, wear long sleeve shirts and long pants, preferably treated with 0.5% permethrin. Permethrin is an insecticide that kills or repels insects like mosquitoes and sandflies. Treated clothing, which by the way you can buy commercially, provides protection even after multiple washes. Do not use permethrin products, however, directly on skin. Of course, you want to keep mosquitoes out of the residence that you're in. Air conditioning, window, door screens, that's going to decrease your exposure. Mosquito netting is also available for your bed. You want to choose one that's compact, rectangular, has about 156 holes per square inch, and is long enough to tuck under the mattress. There's also mosquito netting that is actually permethrin treated. A white net actually is helpful because it provides a background that allows you to better see mosquitoes. Now, strategies for children include long sleeves and pants, netting to cover baby carriers, and using EPA-recommended insect repellent. Now, you want to avoid applying repellent to the child's hands, eyes, or mouth, and you want to spray it onto your hands, and then apply it to the child's face. Do not use products that contain oil of lemon eucalyptus or PMD on children that are under three years of age. 
Likely you're not gonna be able to completely prevent a mosquito bite here and there. If you're bitten, don't scratch the areas. It could cause an infected wound. Wash the area with soap and water and then apply an anti-itch or antihistamine ointment or cream as needed. Listen, there's no reason to believe a major outbreak of malaria is gonna hit the US, but the family medic should know about the disease. Early diagnosis, treatment, and prevention, that's gonna help decrease a patient's chance of long-term illness or worse. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Well, that's all the time that we have for today. You've been listening to the Survival Medicine Podcast. For Amy Alton, I'm Joe Alton, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week. Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did.